Thank you for joining us, and welcome to Include NYC's podcast series. I'm Jean Mizutani, here today with Mark Alter, to pose a question that goes to the very core of our society's ability to provide a sound, basic public education for all of our students, and share thoughts on what can be done. It's my pleasure to introduce you to today's guest, Mark Alter. He is a professor of educational psychology at NYU and was the founding chair of the Department of Teaching and Learning, a position he held for 14 years. A perennial student as much as a professor, he's a product of the New York City school system and enjoys an international presence in our field. He started his career as an assistant teacher way back in 1970 working with preschool and school-age students with severe and profound disabilities at an organization known as the Association for the Help of Retarded Children. Over the course of a long and storied career, he has amassed an extensive body of publications and been the recipient of national and international funded grants and has received numerous awards. Mark is the ideal person to have this conversation with because he has um, witnessed all of the pivotal moments in educating students with disabilities in New York City. That would include the emergence of a specialized system exclusively for students with disabilities known as District 75, several reincarnations of special education reform, and of course many, many court cases. Mark sees the disconnect between policy and practice and is absolutely not afraid to call out the system. He remains a passionate believer in our society's ability and obligation to provide its citizens with a sound, basic public education. Welcome, Mark. Good morning and thank you. I'm so happy to be here having this conversation with you. There's nobody better to discuss this with. Um, before we begin, I just want to talk for a moment about sound, basic public education. It was defined most recently in a 2003 court case known as the Campaign for Fiscal Equity versus the State of New York. The definition is the knowledge and skills students need in order to be prepared for productive civic participation and competitive employment and it determined that these outcomes required that students have the opportunity to complete a meaningful high school education. Now the last thing we need as a society is to have students leave school without having the skills to function productively or even competently in society. So let me ask you Mark, especially pertaining to students with disabilities that are more challenging to educate, can students receive a sound basic education? What a difficult question to start with. Indeed. But I think it's uh, the most important question because it's not driven can kids with disabilities learn, but can all children learn? And um, f just for a little piece to the campaign of fiscal equity, which I think is very, very critical. Uh, Kids are entitled, all kids are entitled to a sound basic education to be productive citizens. It doesn't say math, it doesn't say science, it doesn't say social studies. It says to the foundational skills, social, emotional, uh, 
behavioral, creativity, curiosity. The, the, the spirit is excellent. But there's another piece to the campaign that was very important, and it charged the state, the order from the courts charged the state to provide the resources to enable all children to receive a sound basic education. Those resources range from highly qualified teachers to accessible schools, but there's another statement that they use which I find fascinating, and that is to provide curricula and structural condition, instructional conditions and provide, and I believe it's in quotes, more time for individualization and on-task mm -hmm. behavior. That's in the court order. So, while you made me feel old by giving me my <laughs> history uh, and sharing the history, it is unconscionable that we have not done a better job of educating all our children. It is unconscionable that we have created educational environments that do not support teaching and learning. Class size, the numbers are too large. If I look at a middle school teacher who will have a class register of 150 students, and then that teacher gives an individualized uh, assignment, and the students write three pages, that's 450 pages for that teacher to read. When are they going to do it? The movement towards ICT classrooms, you will have a classroom of 25 to 30 kids. Half could have IEPs. When is the teacher going to have the time for individualization, for differentiation? But more importantly, if the court says there needs to be more time for on task, when is the teacher supposed to do it? So the idea that you clearly articulated that all kids are entitled to a sound basic education, I would add to that, there's no question all kids can learn. And it and, and certainly comes from being in the classroom and I'm a very good toilet trainer and teaching kids to eat. So taking kids and working with kids with very severe behavioral problems, very severe uh, uh, behaviors that challenge the instructional environment, change the conditions. It's not a question, can the kids learn? It's not a question, should the kids have the right to learn? The question is, have we adequately provided the conditions that will support teaching and learning? Have we ever? Uh, we've tried, and, and I've sat with chancellors, I've sat on committees since 1972, and I've watched the changes. So there's been a commitment in this, at least, you know, I'll speak specifically to New York City, to change. Uh, I don't believe we've ever implemented what we had in spirit. We've been driven by a system given by compliance. The changes that I've seen happen as a result of the reform have not have not done a very good job of, of taking on issues of pedagogy and teaching and instruction. It is simply, so not simply, but the whole idea of least restrictive environment in special education, well, to me, if a youngster needs a classroom of eight to one, eight, eight kids, one teacher, one paraprofessional, mm -hmm. or if a youngster needs a classroom with 10 students, 12 students, how can we not be more successful in instructing this kid when we know that every iota of literature that we have in psychology, educational psychology and special ed shows kids can learn? Why have we not been able to fulfill what the research has clearly articulated is that kids can learn. Well, especially since some would say, oh, we've tried 
tried everything. So, for example, it used to be almost par for the course that a student with a disability that was several years behind might automatically go into full-time self-contained class. And those were small classes, and the results were not very good. Um, that's a good point, and that's part of the history. So when I was a student in the Bronx in public school, uh, I went to elementary school in the Bronx, went to junior high school in the Bronx, went to the great D. Wood Clinton High School uh, <laughs> uh, in the Bronx, I never saw a kid with a disability. Uh, the changes that we've made in the system have been uh, we've constantly changed the structure. It's like, it's like ordering a pizza pie and you say uh, pizza's cut into eight slices and you say, you know, I'm still very, very hungry. Can you cut it into 16 pieces? It's still the same size pizza. So what we've done, what we've done is we've created structures that do not support pedagogy, that do not support kids and their families, but create barriers that, uh, that I think do not enable a child to take advantage of the resources of this great city and this great uh, school system. Uh, in all my years, I still cannot find anyone who will define for me the exit criteria special ed. How do you get out of special ed? Ah. <laughs> what do you need to do? If something is not working, if you look at the data that just came out over the last day or two, the data are as bad as they were in 1975. So if, so the question is, what's working, what's not working, and why? So you're referring to the proficiency results, student testing, when you say the data? Correct. And I'm not an advocate for the standardized testing. Mm -hmm. I am not a, an advocate for collecting any information that doesn't impact teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. uh, so, the, so, you know, the question, and if we are tied to this type of testing, then the question we should ask is the schools where it seems to be working, why? What is it that the teachers in the school are doing that enables things to work? And in the schools where it's not working, I think we need to ask the question why? And it shouldn't be beating up people. It shouldn't be attacking the system. We should be doing in-classroom program evaluation that asks the question, how much time is the teacher spending on task, which is what was the intent of the court order campaign fiscal equity. Are teachers spending more or less time? We should, be have, we should have more data uh, looking at class size. I, I, I think that right now class size is the major, the major, major issue that we face in this city, uh, and if not in the country, but certainly in, in, in the city. Uh, in a 45-minute period in elementary school, how is the teacher supposed to individualize, um, differentiate for so many kids? When does the teacher have time to plan? When does the teacher have time to meet with each parent? When does the teacher have time to share what works and what doesn't work? When does the teacher have time to say, I don't know, I need help? Right. And so class size is, I think, a critical factor. Um, Right, and especially in this day and age when teachers should expect and anticipate that they'll be instructing students with disabilities as a matter of course. So the challenge is greater. Correct. Class size is bigger and the challenge is greater. Correct, and I think that when we look at all the reforms and we look at the terminology, so we've gone from mainstreaming to full inclusion to partial, we play with all these right. words, but we don't put in the system to, to implement the ideology. And I think that's part of the problem. So if you go into any classroom in the city of New York, you say to the teacher, you know, uh, uh, do you have time to? 
Mm. Teachers do not have the adequate infrastructure right. that enables them to do all the wonderful things that define what teaching and learning is. And unfortunately, we've created a system that is defined by a disability or by special ed, right. not by educating all our students, which would be more consistent with the sound basic education. Now, over recent years, New York State has introduced um, a lot of different certification pathways, different uh, passing requirements for the high school diploma, the local alternative pathways. What's your opinion on those? Um, so I come out of this city, uh, high school system, at a time when New York City had the best vocational education program in the country. Uh, and there were many diplomas, and not every. And, and the idea behind it is was that not everybody should and needs to go to college. It should be one of choice. So New York City had this incredible occupational, vocational, educational system. High schools, uh, Brooklyn Automotive, Gompers, incredible. There was a time when uh, New York City built one of the best kitchens. I think it's up at Martin Luther King High School. Uh, oh, wow. One of the <laughs> best kitchens <laughs> for culinary arts. Uh, I'm, I, I, I think the beauty to school, the beauty to education, is not getting a job. But you go to school in order to become a member of the society, to learn the culture, the arts, I think, which is lacking in our system. Music, humanities, drama, in addition to all the areas of academic. And then you choose what you want to do with it. Right. And if you want to go on to college, great. But why not go on and become a plumber, become a carpenter, <laughs> become a gas station, we, automotive? We need, yeah, we still need these things. Yeah, and it should be, but it should be choice. So I think anything the state can do to open up the options. But right. here's the problem: the problem is we don't supply the schools with an infrastructure to support student growth and development, and as well as support for the families. The guidance council. So just a quick little story. When I was in D. Wood Clinton High School, my Spanish teacher was Nathan Quinones. My <laughs> my my guidance counselor for two years was Nathan Quinones. But Nathan Quinones <laughs> went on to become the Chancellor of the City of New York. Uh, so Nat <laughs> Nat was not only my teacher, but he was with me for two years, guiding me through the college process and we talked about any number of things. But there needs to be a support. A school is not solely defined by how many teachers. You know, we, there should be guidance counselors. There should be social workers. Not one, not two. Whatever the school needs to meet the needs of the families that make up that school. And I think that's part of all the changes that have gone on this system. The resources tend to be defined by a category such as special right. ed. Right. But schools should be defined by what are the resources that families and kids need in order to receive an appropriate education. Even the availability of mentorship like you had. I mean, you've, you still remember his name. I no, still, <laughs> he, when he was chancellor, he introduced me at a uh, presentation, actually it was to parents, and he said to the group, he still has my Delaney card. Uh, now, at Delaney card, I mean, most people are too young to remember them. There was a book that teachers had, and it was a little two-by-four mm -hmm. index card, and on it was your IQ, your oh, attendance boy. record, and Ooh. any notes that teachers wanted to uh And he kept yours, did he? He said, Why I still have he? your Delaney card. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. Now, I've heard you say that special education is not the problem. Correct. What is the problem? Correct. Um, 
the problem is that if we have something called special education, there should be a system called education. Special ed is an intervention. Special ed doesn't belong to a category, doesn't belong to a specific disability. Special ed is an intervention. And the interventions are not only good for kids who show an array of different learning characteristics, they're good for all kids. So for example, applied behavioral analysis does not belong to a group just called kids with autism. Mm -hmm. It is a very successful and very uh, evidence-based intervention, which we used for kids with intellectually disabled who used to be called mentally retarded, any type of behavior problem. So the whole idea behind sound basic education and the resources and the position that I took in that case was the problem was not special ed. We need to look at the general ed system. Referral comes from general ed. Maybe if class size was smaller, that teachers would not need to make the referral. Uh, special ed in general, it have been designed as two separate parallel systems using terminology such as inclusion, we're an inclusion school, right. we're an inclusion class, as opposed to having a seamless relationship based on pedagogy. Ah. Uh, it would be sort of neat if special ed would be viewed as an intervention, then class size, be, and that was the intent. Mm -hmm. Kids go into different LREs because mm -hmm. it's seen as an intervention. The kid needs a smaller class. Mm -hmm. Functional behavioral assessments, behavioral intervention plans don't just belong to special education. These are approaches and strategies of instruction that belong to human growth development and variability. So we've set up and we've created a system not based on pedagogy, but based on a label. And I think we're seeing how we're struggling with making that system work. Absolutely. And based on regulation, I mean, you can certainly understand the reason for regulation because in order to initiate something, there has to be. <laughs> in order to initiate, you need to justify it, to validate. It, exactly. But, but the legislation, the litigation, the court cases... Um, it, uh, a very uh, fascinating. If you look at when, in 1975, we, we said that uh, kids are entitled to an appropriate education in the least restrictive environment. Mm -hmm. it, it's the connection. It's the juxtaposition. It's the relationship between what is the environment for the kid to receive an appropriate education. It said transition plans. It said related services. It said parent involved. That's all the, the, the law really didn't say much about the content. It right. left it up to a process called right. an IEP process. Mm -hmm. So now we come in and, and when I was a doctoral student, we were very excited about it because what was the, the laws said a group of people, including the parent, the PT, an OT, a guidance counselor, a social worker, were going to come together and talk about one kid and not think about money, but talk about one kid, talk about Piaget, talk about Bloom. It was phenomenal. Metacognition, it was phenomenal. Now what I see is that IEPs tend to be written before the parents come. Exactly. I tend to see more computerized approaches ideas, and people are not sitting around the table and talking. I see teachers don't have the time and if a teacher has 10, 12, 14 kids, when are they supposed to sit down and have these meetings and follow up and monitor what's going on and related services? So 
what we have not done is, I think, put in place a model that supports pedagogy, which would include teachers having time to sit, to talk, to reflect on data, time for parents to come in, and not just at an IEP meeting, but the parents to come in and talk about lesson plans, to observe uh, related services, to talk to the related service providers. Not only has it not gone that way, it appears to be going the other way. You've been following the news? Correct. Uh, and I, I think part of that related service initiative uh, was uh, came out of uh, Jose P., which was a court case that goes back into the late 70s. Mm -hmm. And uh, the school system was not providing kids with timely assessment nor with services that they needed. So. There was a history of not having sufficient number of related services full-time in the school. So the court ordered and said, we're going to give the parent a letter that will enable them to go to a provider, and if they needed a speech therapist who speaks Haitian Creole, Vietnamese, Russian, <laughs> Yiddish, no problem. No problem. <laughs> well, right. now here we are almost 30 years right. later mm -hmm. with the same question, why aren't kids getting the related services that they need for an appropriate education? Right, so you, you could call that a hollow remedy, but in addition to that, it should be provided in the school. Correct. That's where the dynamism is. Gene, that, that's exactly right. I believe that all these services, I, I've argued in the past that maybe some of those related services should be offered on Saturdays, on Sundays, or after school. So my position is that uh, it's twofold. One is that no service should be provided that takes a child away from a teacher and out of a classroom. And second is that if, if a child needs a service during the day, that service should be delivered in the classroom because no time should be taken away from teaching and learning. So I think part of the discussion with the related service provider should be why is it and when is it that this service mm -hmm. needs to be delivered. Many times, if it's a contractual, if the, if the service is not full-time in the school, then the service is done when that person comes to the school. Right. And it and could be at 11 o'clock, the mm -hmm. teacher is teaching math, especially the kid is pulled out for the service, and the kid is missing math. It's very broken. It, 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 it defa it's not rocket science. It's not <laughs> logical. And yet, as bad as it is, it could be worse because recently we observed um, different debates about the health care law. We were faced with the possibility that Medicaid would be reduced. Medicaid is one of the number one funders, maybe it is the number one funder, of related services in the school system. Uh, I think there are a number of things going on that could be very bad for children uh, with disabilities. And here's why. If there, if there are cuts, and there are reductions in physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech right. therapy. That means that the teachers will have to assume even greater responsibility for understanding human growth development and variability. That means that the education of a teacher will have to be more intense, more rigorous, and now we're looking at teacher ed being less rigorous. Exactly. It makes no sense. And what will happen, and it is, I think this is part of being around as you get older, you get a little more reflective, the right. system is going to continue. And we'll justify it, the scores will be low, 
and if this continues to happen and scores get lower, we'll blame it on everything. We'll blame it on a right. president, we'll blame it on this, we'll blame it on that. Right. But the bottom line is that the students and the parents ultimately are the ones that are being hurt. The students will then graduate high school lacking a sound basic education, exactly. unemployment will be continued to be high. Uh, we'll have more and more students, who, young adults, who will not get transition plans. I mean, you can predict what's, go what's going to happen, and we're seeing all the pieces in right. place now. Including the reduction in civic participation. Even that, an undereducated individual usually doesn't participate. Correct. 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 It's shocking. So at this time that we're talking about a greater demand on teachers, um, I'm not a teacher, but over the years I've seen that teachers have been vilified. I'm not sure if a young, bright individual would be considering teaching the same way they might have 20 years ago. What do you think? Uh, a lot of thoughts and a lot of uh, trouble with what's happening in the city, in the state, and certainly across the country. Uh, I, I think a number of things need to happen. One of the one of the problems happening across the country is finding people to enter teacher education. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other side to it is once people make a commitment to go into teacher education, how do you keep them in the system? And I think that there are solutions. The solution I think that have, that we've selected in this state or playing with it or what the thing across the country, which is to reduce the, the content. I'll sit and I would love to have the discussion what are different strategies to prepare someone to be a teacher. I think that's exciting and I don't think we have any one model. I think there are different ways to do it but but coupling this discussion of alternative certification, we're looking at doing it faster, we're looking at reducing right. uh, uh, re reducing the number of credits or forget the word credit, reducing the content and that's what scares me. Uh, I think the most difficult job, the most difficult job, uh, uh, is to be a teacher, and and of all the teachers, the most difficult job is being a teacher, a special education teacher, and uh, of anything, we should be looking at criteria for entry into teacher education. We should be looking on once you've acquired the skills to be a teacher, how mm -hmm. do we keep you? I think one of the biggest problems we have uh, is in the area of professional development. Mm -hmm. We don't have a seamless relationship between the where someone gets educated and once, where someone works. I think professional development needs to be done in the classroom. If a teacher wants to know how to teach reading, sitting somewhere on a Saturday or Sunday morning from 9 to 12 is not going to <laughs> necessarily guarantee that on Monday morning they're right. going to be able to bring back that strategy right. into a classroom of 30 some odd kids showing enormous variability. So I think that professional development and if the if the uh, current budget cuts professional development in the school district, I think it's a serious mistake. Serious mistake because that is part of the seamless relationship and you're going to have people who are not adequately educated to be a teacher going into a system that doesn't have the resources right. to fill the gaps. Exactly. And the people who are going to get hurt, hurt most are the students and the, teach and the parents. Mm. Um. So much has happened. In 2012, New York City underwent another reform in special education. Um, it was pretty earth-shattering at the time. There were some major changes involved. Was it an improvement? What a, what, 
Gene, what a tough question. Um, <laughs> it uh, is. Uh, I, I think there's good news and bad news, probably more bad news than good news. The good news is the speed with which uh, the city implemented their integrated classrooms mm -hmm. or f under the rubric of inclusion. Right. What it did is it took kids who were in self-contained classrooms, primarily youngsters who were black and Hispanic, who've been spending a lifetime in these self-contained classrooms. It took them out of self-contained classrooms and put them into general ed classrooms. So I think what it did is it broke the back of the model of containment of kids with uh, disabilities in self-contained classrooms. And it did it quickly. So it's interesting, when the city wants to do something fast, it, it can. It can. Which yes. is, so they find the money, they find the rooms, they do, everything is done very quickly when something is pushing it from behind. And, and yeah. my gut is that it wasn't pedagogy. It, it that, wasn't, it wasn't. And I think a favorite phrase at that time was, we're building capacity. I mean, they did it very quickly and they were unprepared. Breaking the back of that model, as you put it, was probably a good thing, but definitely the schools were unprepared. Cool. Correct. A hundred percent right. And I don't think they prepared the families. I don't think they prepared the schools. And what? And I don't think the whole implementation was rolled out. In a matter of fact, I think they even waited a year because there were so many issues. <laughs> but one of the things I don't, I think, w was not worked out uh, or thought through was the whole idea of LRE, least restrictive environment, mm -hmm. so that if if there is a self-contained classroom in a school, and now I take all the youngsters in that self-contained classroom and put them into this integrated classroom, if that youngster doesn't make it in that classroom, where does the kid go? So I've closed my resource room, right. my room, Right. I eliminated my self-contained, then the only backup is District 75 which is more restrictive, more restrictive administratively and pedagogically. So what happens is that they didn't think through. Also, coming from a, 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 an evidence-based type of framework, I would love to see some data regarding what works, what doesn't work. It would be what a great time to get some data on class size, what a great time it would be to get some data, or should have collected data, we've had since 2012, uh, what's happened to kids as individuals, how many kids have been declassified, which is part of the continuum in New York State is declassification. Right. Uh, it would be great to ask a question, does a teacher have adequate time in order to meet the needs of the kids with IEPs and kids without IEPs, yet the numbers have increased over since 2012, the number of IEP kids in a classroom. These are things that just don't make sense. Right. But they sound good. They're sound bites. Right. And now they're parsing it, you know, how many periods a day are you receiving special education services? So if it's only two periods or less, that's considered a huge improvement compared to something more exactly. intensive, more robust. And, and I think that's part of the part of the discussion, part of the issue. It's not a question of you, special ed is not episodic. It's not just it happens at 10, at 12. Right. It's something that if it's viewed as an intervention, it could start at home and go all the way wow. through the day. It's when with the gym teacher, it's when this youngster, if they're working on social emotional skills. I think one of the one of the areas that we have not looked carefully enough at is if a youngster has a behavioral intervention plan, 
is it being implemented? Mm -hmm. A behavior to change behavior, which I think has a lot of questions about it. But if there is a behavior intervention plan, who's implementing it and when? Just from nine to nine forty. Right. <laughs> and then you don't it implement it, humorous, in, yeah. you know, and you're working on emotional skills, right. appropriate social skills. It sh it should be implemented throughout the day, so you have a system that yep. is. You know, it's actually it's actually even worse than that, as far as I'm concerned, because you know I asked the question once, who's qualified to conduct a functional behavior assessment, and the answer was anyone. And I said, anyone, no special training or certification, you don't need a psychologist. No, anyone can do the observation. That shocked me. So I, I think that leads to a behavior plan that might be less than perfect, and that leads to lack of implementation. So it's watered down every step along it's, the way. See, and, <laughs> and, and, correct, and it's not the schools of education that are at fault. We have the coursework. Kids are leaving our programs, and I, I'm certainly here at NYU, but I would support uh, every one of my colleagues in every institution in this city do an excellent job of teaching their students how to do a functional behavioral assessment and design a behavior right. intervention plan. But it's in the it's in the right. it's at the university level, it's in the school. When they go into schools, the questions are: Do they have the time to do a functional behavioral assessment? Do they sit down and work as a team to design the behavioral intervention plan? Do they control the antecedent event, the things that happened before the behavior? Do they look at the consequences of the behavior? Do they have time to record it? Do they have time to debrief and understand what's working, what's not working? Uh, so when I first learned applied behavioral analysis and FBAs and everything, was at a time when we had small classrooms and we had a support system and we would meet and we would talk. I'm not sure we have put in place an adequate environment and culture of teaching and learning. So you had asked me earlier about special ed. I don't believe we have that culture in general ed. I think general ed teachers are under enormous pressure. Yes, they are. Enormous. And, I th and, and now you factor in youngsters with disabilities into the classroom? Right. Do the teachers have time to do response to intervention? I was, a, I was about to ask you about that. How important is response to intervention prior to a referral? Um, I would say the federal guidelines, they were very smart. They said that before you refer a kid, you do pre-referral interventions. Response to intervention is a pre-referral intervention on the general ed side. Mm -hmm. There's supposed to be at least three tiers, a school-level model, a group model, an individual level. RTI doesn't belong just to one teacher. Then the pre-referrals don't belong just to one person. So a school needs to have a culture of pre-referral interventions, needs to have a culture, let's throw out the word pre-referral for the moment, needs to have a culture that enables every teacher to get to get a closer look at what are a kid's strengths, what are a kid's limitations, what are a kid's weaknesses. All before you start triggering a system, right? a kid can have a disability, a kid can have spina bifida, a youngster can have Down syndrome, a youngster can have attention deficit disorder and not go into special ed. That youngster can get a 504. Or wouldn't it be interesting <laughs> that the kid have 
certain learning characteristics and doesn't get anything other than a small class size with a teacher and a support system and the label becomes invisible. That would be amazing. I mean, you've said many times that students shouldn't be categorized. Correct. So say more about that. So we, we, we said we had a system that was defined by category teacher education. So I am permanently certified in the state of New York as a teacher of the mentally retarded. So, so certification was categorical. Along comes the law and New York City changed a lot of what it did to a non-categorical system. It went from the Bureau for Children with Retarded Mental Development, mm -hmm. it went to uh, Modified Instructional Services and CISs, it went to everything according to the law was to move away from categorical placement and pedagogical decision making. Sounds sort of good. Now I look back and it's 30, almost uh, 47 years, and we're back to a categorical right. model. So that they're now in the hot category, or the category du jour, mm -hmm. is autism. Right. Yet the majority of youngsters in this city and in this state, in this country, have a learning disability or speech and language impaired. And I would argue many of the kids who are in those categories don't belong in those categories. Uh, and we're back to the categorical model of right. training, categorical model of intervention, a categorical model of placement of kids. And, it, and, and, and we're repeating uh, ourselves, and we're repeating history, and we haven't learned what these models have led to, which is segregation, which is discrimination, which is a system that doesn't provide a sound, basic education to all its children. Wow, it's startling. Now, I know that you strongly promote um, pedagogical reform and feel it would do more for the integration of students with disabilities alongside typically developing peers than anything else. Is that correct? That's correct, because I start from the premise all kids can learn. There's not a kid, so having done a lot of toilet training and teaching kids who were quadriplegic to eat, working with eye movements, working with guttural sounds, working with a team of people, mm -hmm. with occupational therapists, physical therapists, speech therapists, closely involved with parents who would design clothes so that their kids in Velcro was very hot sure. when I was, was teaching and take out the buttons and put in Velcro. There's not a kid who can't learn. So it is beyond belief to me that, th that we have kids who do not have severe and profound disabilities. Kids who are basically good, in, well kids are good, but intact, and they're not intact. doing better. It, I don't understand it. So that's pedagogical reform, that's what you're, Correct. that's the answer. Correct, exactly. Get into the classroom, provide the teacher with the supports that they need in the classroom, not episodic, reduce class size, and if a class size needs to be five, then a classroom needs to be five. I think we need to break away from a pedagogical model that defines pedagogy by disability. Mm -hmm. I think we need to look, for example, it would be neat that activities and curricula for kids who are gifted also be looked at for kids who have disabilities. Why not? There's nothing wrong with curiosity. There's no use of Vygotsky's model and, and, and build, build in place looking at the potential of kids as opposed to saying your, your potential is defined by your disability category. View curriculum as dynamic. View curriculum as a change agent. View curriculum as infinite, not finite.
and with this age of technology, right, uh, you can you can you can visit the museums of this great city online before you go out there. You can have interactive environments. Nothing now is beyond access to a kid with a disability, other than what we the barriers we put in place, and I think we put those barriers in place. That's pretty amazing. Uh, now I have a provocative question to ask you. Let's see how you do with this. The teachers union usually blames the New York City Department of Education for problems, and vice versa. The Department of Ed blames the teachers union. Um, is there anything that each side can do to improve the situation? Uh, tough question, but I've sat over the years, I think five chancellors, I've been at the table with the United Federation of Teachers, and it's not a confrontational relationship. I believe the United Federation of Teachers, the Council of Supervisors Administrators, the New York City Department of Education, the service providers, I don't think I, any of them want to deny a kid a sound basic education. I think there are a lot of politics. I think there are public relations. I think if we change the reason they come to the table, I think if we say to these groups, how do we provide a sound basic education? How do we provide the pedagogy? See, we don't have the evidence. How do we reduce class size? So I am, I, I am amazed that we do so much co-location in schools <laughs> right. when we've argued we don't have, we don't, we can't have smaller class size. Right. So if a school has room for co-location, it's not a. I'm not against co-location, but reduce class size and then see what's what's left. So how do you get these major agencies and organizations? The other piece that I don't think we've done a very good job of, and I would include in this, uh, this, this group at the table, New York City is probably one of the greatest cities in the world with institutions of higher education. I think the CUNY system is quite incredibly great mm -hmm. in this city. The community colleges, the private universities, we should be playing more of a substantive role. Um, I think agencies such as include New York City, I think Advocates for Children, I think there's some really mm -hmm. great, 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 great innovators and thinkers, and I think everybody needs to get to the table with one topic, how to enhance the education of all children in the city of New York. It's a beautiful goal. Now things are so complicated, is there any way that parents can better collaborate with teachers? Um, First of all, I don't think parents have a choice. <laughs> uh, so uh, my grandkids both go to public school up in the Bronx, and I say to my wow. daughter, visit, get involved, yeah. go, talk, ask questions. Uh, my wife is a former teacher uh, in the Bronx, uh, resource room teacher, and we say to her, here are the questions to ask. Look for lesson plans. If, the, if there's a problem, ask, what have you done? Uh, you always do it nicely. Parents must be the advocates. Parents must be engaged. Parents are not the teachers. The teachers have been trained to be teachers, but parents have a very unique role. That's to keep an eye on everybody and make sure that their kids are getting what their kids are entitled to, which is a sound basic education. I think parents need more than the episodic three-minute parent night. Sure. I think the better schools <laughs> that I've seen have more of a systemic involvement of parents. And it's not just mom, but ideally extended family right. uh, could and siblings. So what, 
a school is a place for a family. And that's why we, it's not just teachers, you need social workers, you need to have guidance counselors. And that then becomes a friendlier place, a, a more inviting place to parent, for parents. That's beautiful. So, to summarize, what is your charge to action based on the lessons of the past? Wow, 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 Gene. <laughs> we're going um, out with a bang here, Mark. We're going out, well, I, 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 I'd say uh, design one educational system uh, that has as its goal providing a sound basic education to every single kid in the city of New York. Design a system that is based on maximizing pedagogy. Design a system that does not isolate teachers from uh, uh, from families or from uh, other people within their school. Design a system that has one goal in mind, educate all its children, regardless of whatever characteristics those kids uh, bring, uh, bring to the system. I would just add one other piece to this. New York City has the best of everything going on that I've seen in the world. New York City is an incredible resource. It's like a candy store with unlimited potential, but there have been barriers. And I think the barriers have been systemic, the barriers have been procedural, the barriers have been, uh, we haven't changed the focus from the system to the classroom. And if we use the classroom as the nucleus of change, I think the city has tremendous potential. Maybe we'll be the ones to do it first. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully in 20 years we're not sitting here having the same discussion. <laughs> no, one would hope not. Mark, thank you very much. Thank you for joining You're us. You're very we welcome. Thank it. you.